Thank you for joining us for our expository exploration of the book of James. This small little letter, probably that began as a sermon somewhere in the mid-40s AD, just about a decade after Jesus' ascension, when the character of the Christian church was decidedly Jewish, and this half-brother of Jesus, James, by now a pillar in the early church in Jerusalem, is sharing with us the transformation of our lives that occurs when we enter the new covenant in Christ. He's sharing wisdom, wisdom of how to live in this new reality of God's creation. Thank you, friend, for joining us at Arlington United. Well, last week in our exploration of the book of James, in chapter 1, verses 13 through 16, we found that the good things that we desire in life, the desire for intimacy and connection, the desire for affirmation and acceptance, the desire for provision in our lives and to have the things that we need, all of these things are given by God and we can pursue them in ways of righteousness, or we can try to take the shortcut. And by taking the shortcut, that's where sin comes in. As our desires are uncommitted to the principles of Christ, so we take advantage of others. We try to take shortcuts with ourselves. We find the way of Adam and Eve, which was reaching and grasping for what didn't belong to them and was actually prohibited for them for their own protection. Isn't that the story of all of us? When we reach out for the things that we think are good, but we try to do it our way rather than trusting God to provide the good things for us, that's when we fall into the trap of sin. And James clearly says, just as God had prophesied to Adam and Eve, that way leads to death. Paul had also said the wages of sin is death. So we see the harmony of the scriptural story as it shows us the proper way to live is to submit to God's sovereignty, to obey his moral law, to follow his explicit commands, and to be blessed within him. Well, in verse 17, we see that the father of lights, there's no shadow of turning in him. His consistency is always constant, and every good and perfect gift comes down from him. And so God's sovereignty is above us, his provision is for us, and his character shows us that he's at work for our good. We don't have to reach and stretch and scratch and claw and, and try to, to climb the ladder on the backs of other people. We don't have to push other people down in order to elevate ourselves. Paul had shared with us in Ephesians that we've been seated together in heavenly places in Christ. And that's the wonderful thing about Christian living is that when God elevates a person, everyone around them receives blessings and benefits. And we can receive that blessing through God who gives us good gifts. Well, in verse 18, James shares with us that this is because of God's will. He has fathered us with the word of truth, and we become then a kind of first fruits of his, of his creatures. And this is consistent with James' message throughout his entire sermon. What he's showing us here is our value doesn't come from what we have. It doesn't come from what we achieve. It doesn't come for our social or educational status in the so-called strata of society. It comes through the rudimentary foundational understanding that we are created in Christ. He begets us. There's a familial relationship here. And this theology of belonging 
ontologically to God through the work of the incarnate Jesus Christ shows us, it, it, it informs our morality because it gives us absolute belonging, but it also gives an absolute demand morally on our lives to live as the Lord shows us to live. This language of begetting or becoming a son or daughter of God echoes what other um, great Christian writers within the New Testament canon have shown us. John said in chapter 1, verses 12 of his gospel, that to them that believed God, he, he gave the power to become his sons. And so we are the children of God through belief and obedience. Colossians 1 and 15 says that Christ was the firstborn of every creature. As the Son of God, Christ, God incarnate, pointed the way to a new way of being human. He was the firstborn of the new creation. And we get to be joint heirs with him. We get to be, um, as it were, part of the sonship of God. Not capital S, Son of God. We're not God incarnate, obviously, but we are little sons, if you will, a, a small s, and we're little daughters, a, a small d, in that we are part of the family of God if we stand in the new covenant created through the blood of Christ and through obedience to his salvific plan. Second Corinthians 5.17 says, we're now new creatures. Uh, we're new creatures in Christ, part of the new creation. And Romans 8 tells us that the whole world is waiting for the, the children of God to be revealed in order that we can show what God is doing. And so James is relying on this new understanding of the Christians who had received the power of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost and moving forward. Those that were infilled with this empowering presence recognized that a whole new way of relating to the world was afoot because God was not only changing individual lives, he was changing families, he was changing societies, he was changing cultures and nations, and even the approach of the entire humanity to his creation. So if that's the case, James says, how do we then live as new creatures? If we are ontologically bound to God through the work of God in Jesus, how do we relate to that? And how do we sort of embody that reality in this earth? Well, relationship leads to discipleship. Belonging leads to obedience. Freedom leads to obedience in Christ and to following his ways. In verse 19, James says, one of the things you need to do is be, be very fast to hear, but be very slow to speak. The Greek philosopher Zeno had said, we have two ears and one mouth for a reason. We are to listen more than we are to speak. And James relates this, this practical moral guidance and this practical behavioral guidance to who we are in Christ. He says, we need to be slow to wrath because the anger of man or the wrath of man does not work the righteousness of God. We find that in James chapter 1, verse 20. If we look around our culture, we see that the last few years have been riven with strife. There are people who are very angry about injustices or perceived injustices. And we have people on many sides of the political spectrum that are expressing anger about the way the world is and they want to see change. And we've seen people take to the streets. We've seen people certainly on social media platforms sharing their opinions. And, and uh, we've also seen people that become very angry with one another over these issues. 
And I want to be careful here because there are injustices in the world that need to be addressed. And certainly the Bible is full of prophetic warnings to the covenant people of God and also to those that are outside of covenant that when humanity falls away from what God has planned, that there are, you know, tolls to be paid. There are challenges that come and these wrongs need to be righted. And so scripture is replete with these examples. But let me assure you today, the proper way to transform society doesn't come entirely through political maneuvering. It doesn't come solely through civic responsibility. Our society will only be truly transformed when hearts are changed into the image of God in Christ, into his expressed person through through his, uh, his law, his obedience. That's the way that real change happens. It's not that we should not be civically engaged. It's not that we shouldn't be informed citizens. But friend, let me assure you, the new Jerusalem is the hope of humanity, not any particular earthly capital or earthly system. Men's systems, humanity systems, political solutions will always fail us unless those machinations are informed by the Spirit of God, unless they are are driven by people who are truly following God's moral law. Humanity can't do it. We can't legislate morality, and our human justice falls far short of the divine mercy and justice, the truth and mercy that he gives us. And so as Christians, let's be transformed by his presence. If you engage politically or civically, you know, I don't think that that is wrong. However, we want to ensure that our engagement is different from those who don't have the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. Our engagement has to be driven by love and not by hatred. James said, the wrath of man doesn't work the righteousness of God. Just being angry about an injustice will not set it right. Even Martin Luther King Jr., the great reformer of the civil rights movement in 20th century America said, hatred doesn't drive out hatred. Only love is powerful enough to do that. I think it's a great example of how he allowed his Christian character to influence his civic engagement. James in verse 21 tells us that we need to put aside all the filthiness of the flesh. The the imagery here is someone who removes nasty clothing. You know, I sometimes do a lot of outdoor activities, either in working or in recreation. And I have two small children uh, who like to get out and just, if there's a mud pile, it seems that they can find it. If there's a, a dirt pile, a mud hole, if there's they just get, they get nasty outside. And sometimes when they come inside the door, the first thing we do is say, okay, we've just got to go straight to the bath. And, and, and we put aside those nasty clothes and we get them in something clean because we don't want them to tear up the whole house with what they brought in from the outside. This is the imagery that James is using. He says, put aside the filthiness that you've picked up in the world. Uh, put aside the things that are, are not conducive to your, to your cleanliness. One of the words here that he uses is rupus. Uh, it, it's actually a medical word in Greek terminology, and it means wax in the ear. This is kind of a gross little image, but what he's saying is put aside the, the, the in the King James, it says the superfluity of naughtiness, the, the overwhelming amount of filth that comes from living in this world. And the imagery is, is of an ear that's been impacted with wax. And because of that, the ear cannot hear. In my medical practice, I often have people come in and say, I need you to check my hearing. But actually, when we look at their ears, it's not their eardrum. It's not the bones. It's not the brain and the nerves that are the problem. They just have an obstruction and they can't hear because there's an obstruction there that's come through accumulated 
sorry, filth. And when we remove that, they can hear. James said, take that out, take that filthiness away, and you'll be able to hear the word of God. You'll be able to receive with meekness the engrafted word. The imagery of engraftment here is the idea of of, uh, taking one plant and putting it into another, one living thing and putting it to another living thing. The word of God is alive. And of course, we are alive if we're responding to it in obedience through the power of the spirit. But in order for engrafting to occur, there has to be a cutting. The open edge of the new plant, the new living thing, has to be opposed to the to the original plant, and it has to be cut in order to receive that engrafting. It's bound together. You know, the Bible says that the word of God is is sharp. It's like a sword. And sometimes when we hear uh, from a speaker or we hear from the written word of God that we're not doing what we need to be doing or that we need to change, sometimes it can it can cut us in our heart, as it were. It can can cause us to feel conviction and the pain of the realization that we need to change. But let's don't recoil from that. Let's embrace that as God is doing that for our good. In my profession, we sometimes do surgery to remove things that are injurious to the body. And yes, there's some temporary pain, but overall, it's for the health of that person. Nobody needs to live with an inflamed appendix. It needs to come out. Let's receive with meekness the engrafted word because James says that it's able to save our souls. A body can be saved by timely surgery. A soul can be saved by the timely application of the word of God and obedience to that word. That's where obedience comes in. Verse 22, James says, don't just be hearers of the word, but be doers of the word because doing the word is what allows us to overcome in this life. Jesus has said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 24, that someone who hears my words and they they don't do them, they, they hear, but they don't obey. It's like a person who builds their life on a, a shifting foundation of sand. And when the storms of life come, then that structure won't hold. But if someone hears the word and does the word, Jesus said, that's like somebody who builds their their the house of their life on a solid rock, a solid foundation. And no matter what storms come, the house will stand up. I want to be a doer of the word. James said, if you hear the word and you do it, then you know, you you you're achieving what God's purpose is for your life. But if we don't do the word, we deceive ourselves. He says in verse 23, it's kind of like when you look in a mirror and you look at your face and you walk away and you forget. Just seeing who we are in the word of God isn't enough. We have to change because if we don't change, then what advantage do we have of seeing where we need God to transform us? If I'm at a social gathering, I, I, I go to the restroom and washroom and I look and I have a hair that's wildly out of place or my tie is askew or I have something on my teeth or, or there's you know a smudge on my face from eating a jelly donut that day or something, but I don't change. I just walk away. Then what advantage has the mirror been to me? It's just shown me my flaws. It hasn't encouraged me to correct those flaws. In Christ, when we obey his word, that's when the blessing comes. That's when the blessing comes. And we understand that we need to not only hear the word of God, but we need to do the word of God. James says that if we hear the word and we do it, that's the person, verse 25, that is looking into the perfect law of liberty. They're looking in this mirror of what God has shown us 
that how we need to behave and how we need to be. And we're allowing the spirit to make changes in us that enrich our life and empower our life to become these new creatures that God is making in his new covenant of the New Testament. You know, when he speaks about this perfect law of liberty, it sounds a little paradoxical. What do you mean? Law sounds like something I have to obey, but liberty is whatever I want to do. It's a false dichotomy set up by our Eurocentric way of seeing things. Actually, Seneca had said to obey God is freedom. He was a Roman philosopher. And we need to get back to that more ancient understanding that, you know, liberty is given to us as a precondition of love. The United States foundational principle is freedom. It is liberty. But that in God's kingdom, liberty and freedom is given as a precondition to make love real. You know, love isn't love if it's not free. And this is why God gave us freedom. This is why the Son of Man has come to make us free, that we can freely choose. We can freely choose to embrace God's love. When they asked Jesus, what's the most important commandment? What's the most important part of the law? You know, he had 613 choices. (laughs) There were 613 commands in what we call the Old Testament or the Mosaic law. 365 of those were negative. There was a don't do this for every day of the year. 243 of those were positive, or excuse me, 248 of those were positive. He could have said, you know, any of these commands are the most important. He chose two, and they're both rooted in love. Number one, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, strength. Number two, and he said, this is very much like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Again, there's this paired element of who we are in relation to God, the vertical relationship, And the morality of what we do are horizontal relationships. If I'm rightly related to God vertically, I'm going to be rightly related to the people around me and those I interact with. That's the horizontal relationship. And James says, if we do this, we are truly blessed indeed. Well, he goes back in verse 26 and verse 27, and he compares false religion to true religion. Falsely pious people that really think they're religious, but they cannot control their tongue. He says, you're deceiving yourselves. You're you're deceiving your own heart. You know, Jesus had said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. James picks up on that idea and he says, if you say you're a super religious person, but you can't control what you say, you can't control what you're speaking, you can't control how you use this beautiful, distinctive gift of language that God has given us, that speech is, it is unique to the human species on earth. If you can't use that gift for goodness, then you're really not a truly religious person at all. And in verse 27, he closes this first chapter by showing us what true religion is. And that's the title of our, of our expository exploration series, True Religion. James says, this is what it is. He says, keep yourself unspotted from the world. Again, this idea of don't pick up sin. Keep yourself unspotted from the world. But then, He says, you visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction, and that constitutes true religion. Again, there's a a moral component of righteousness and holiness toward God, a vertical component of holiness, but then there's a horizontal component of holiness. We do good works in the world. We do what God asks us to do. In contemporary society of James, the fatherless, orphans, and widows had tremendous economic and social pressures and stigma associated with them. And so to minister to these people, we're ministering to those who in Greco-Roman society were on the so-called lowest rungs of the social ladder. 
James is saying, if you really want to reach to heaven with your piety, get to the lowest places on earth and minister to those that really can't give back to you in a material way. His entire sermon keeps revisiting this theme that we're all equal in Christ in the new covenant. And therefore, we don't need to have worldly values of trying to look at who can bless us, who can make life better for us, how we can advance ourselves in human strata of society. But we need to enact this new creation, this new reality of Christ's covenant in the world around us by being practical in our holiness. Because of who God has made us, we live in a different way. We have a different value set. Isn't that a wonderful way to realize that God is at work making something new in us as we obey the covenant that he has instituted in Christ? What challenging words Pastor James leaves for us in this sermon. It's not enough just to live by the rules. We have to live by the new law, this, this perfect law of liberty that Christ has instituted in the new covenant. So our whole motivation for morality is different. It's because of who God has made us that we respond differently in our world because God is remaking this world through his new people that he has made by coming and robing himself in flesh. God has a man, Christ. He made a whole new way of humanity through his sacrifice on Calvary and his resurrection. And the, he infills his people with his power on the day of Pentecost. It is the creation of a new humanity, of a new society, of a new way of living that anticipates the new heaven and new earth that will be the fulfillment of the denouement of what God is doing in us as his new creation. Wow, wow. That's not dead, dry, boring religion. That is a new spiritual reality that is coming to pass in us if we hear and do the word of God. I want to be one of those new people. I want to be one of those new creations in Christ. What about you? Thank you for joining us at Arlington United.